It's Monday, April 22nd, 2019. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, this is our weekly Monday Bible study and call to prayer. Today, we are continuing our study on the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. Well, good morning and welcome to Lifeline Children's Services Weekly Bible Study. This week, our passage is continuing in Acts chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 40, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And the events of this uh, morning's passage are complex. I don't want to spend uh, much of our time with an introduction, but simply to use our time wisely and begin, we'll be looking at only 25 verses, but their place in the unfolding of Paul's second missionary journey brings great significance to the story. We left off last week with Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke in the Roman colony city of Philippi, where they met a wealthy woman named Lydia. Acts 16.14 says, quote, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, end quote. And Lydia and her family were baptized, and she invited Paul to stay with her. And this morning's text follows directly on the heels of Lydia's conversion, as these Christian missionaries have remained in Philippi. And in some ways, uh, there is this social juxtaposition that we're going to see. In the prior passage from last week, we have Paul appealing to a woman of incredible social and economic uh, wealth. Lydia might be considered the Coco Chanel or the Vera Wang of the first century, and Paul has no qualms about telling her about Jesus. Today's passage, though, has Paul coming into contact with two people who are polar opposite of Lydia in her social and economic standings. So let's take a look, beginning in Acts 16, verse 16. The scriptures read, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. God, it's always um, an honor and a blessing to read Holy Scripture. And as we consider the text before us, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and in in truth to teach us your word, for we are uh, sinful, even in our state of redemption, we still rebel, and so our hearts and our spirits can't understand rightly apart from the Holy Spirit giving insight and uh, correction and conviction in these matters. And so we, uh, we pray that he would guide us today as we read and study and examine this passage, and we are grateful for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we have for consideration this morning a passage that powerfully depicts the impact that gospel proclamation can have on people from all backgrounds. Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection isn't just for one class of people. His kingdom is for all who hear his voice and respond. And on the heels of Lydia's conversion, we see Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke continue to minister and evangelize the people of Philippi, both Jews and Gentiles. And Luke tells us as they made their way down the river for prayer that they crossed paths with a slave girl who was possessed by a demon. And just like the gospel accounts that show Jesus' interactions with demons, the demon in this story 
that's possessing the slave girl begins to testify truthfully about spiritual things. Uh, remember what this demon says through the voice of the girl, quote, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Luke says that this goes on for many days. So back and forth, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are walking back and, uh, to the, and forth to the river for prayer. And this girl uh, keeps following them and keeps testifying through this demon of, uh, of, of the God that they serve for many days. And uh, 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 Luke says in verse 18 that Paul became greatly annoyed. This might sound bizarre that Paul would be so greatly annoyed at this girl possessed by a demon that is proclaiming truthful things about him and his companions until we maybe understand a little bit more of the broader, broader Greco-Roman society. See, they were a culture that was saturated with worship. They worshipped seasons. They worshipped animals. They worshipped fertility and sex. They worshipped a pantheon of gods. And to have this girl going around proclaiming that they were servants of a god would be in a Roman city either meaninglessly confusing to those who heard or simply not helpful. So terms like servant of the most high God or the way of salvation take on an entirely different meaning in the context of Philippi in the Greco-Roman world than, say, for instance, if these words were uttered in Jerusalem under the guise of Judaism, knowing that there is but one God. And, and so Paul and, and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they've got this groupie following them and making confusing or misleading statements about them. And this makes their work, their missionary work, very counterproductive. And Paul was having none of it. He didn't want anything to distract his listeners from the message of salvation that comes exclusively in Jesus. And so I was kind of thinking about how maybe to explain this. And uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I am a huge uh, college football fan. And specifically, I grew up in Oklahoma. And so my whole life, uh, since I was age six, I have rooted for the University of Oklahoma. So a big diehard OU fan. And, and so I can imagine walking around and someone uh, from behind proclaiming uh, a truth that says something like, well, Jason is a big college football fan. Jason loves college football. And in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's not very specific. See, I'm not a fan of college football. I don't watch every college football team, and I don't root for every college football team. I root for OU. I'm a, I'm a Sooner. And so I would not want there to be any uh, confusion about which team that I root for. And so I would quickly turn around and say, no, I'm not a fan of college football. I'm a fan of the University of Oklahoma. And so in essence, this is what Paul is doing, showing uh, that there is a distinction between the God that he worships and the statement that this girl is making that might be confusing uh, to his audience. And so, so uh, he's not going to tolerate being declared merely religious. He is not willing for Jesus and the message of the cross to be one God among many within the pantheon of Greek gods. And so in the name of Jesus, Paul casts this demon out 
and its exit from the girl is immediate. And this exorcism appears to have two effects. One is inferred, and the other is demonstrable. The, the, the inferred consequence or effect is that uh, when the demon uh, uh, leaves or exits her, there's a great likelihood that this slave girl becomes a Jesus follower. Now, the text doesn't say this specifically, but I think we can make a logical deduction based on another passage uh, of the Bible, what it says, and then what this text does not say. Acts 16 does not say that the demon returned. In fact, there's the implication in verse 19 that the demon doesn't return at all, that the owners of this slave have every confidence that her oracle powers, her ability to tell the future, are now gone. The demon is left and is not and will not return. How do we make this leap from a demon leaving and not returning to this girl becoming a Jesus follower? Well, if you recall in Luke's first volume, uh, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 11, uh, Luke uh, gives us this, this teaching or this story. He recounts this event where Jesus casts out a demon from a mute man. And, and, and there are those that are around who see it and some believe in Jesus' power but others accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And so Jesus begins to teach them about uh, demon possession and exorcism, and he cites the dictum that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he goes on to give an example of the power of demons and what demon possession looks like. Uh, beginning in Luke 11, verse 24 Jesus says these words, quote, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So we have here Jesus teaching that when a demon is cast out of a person, there's no place of rest for it. So it decides to return, but instead of coming back by itself, it brings seven more spirits. And I think probably the number seven here is symbolic. There's not literally one demon plus seven more, which makes eight demons, but seven is often a number of completion or or perfection, and so the totality of evil is coming back in a much stronger sense to repossess this person. And so the idea is, is if the house, that is the spiritual component of a person, is left unoccupied, Jesus says a greater force of demonic possession comes and takes that person back over, causing, quote, the last state of that person to be worse than the first. But it seems like this is not what happens with the slave girl. Her house is not left empty because she's not possessed again. In fact, as I mentioned, her masters become angry with Paul when they realize that they have lost, essentially, the goose that lays the golden egg because this girl made lots of money for her, her masters. She could foretell the future, and this was 
an incredible moneymaker in first century Philippi. And so I would argue from Jesus' teaching in Luke 11 and from we, what we don't see in Acts chapter 16, that this girl who is demon-possessed and a slave comes to faith in Jesus, the same Jesus that gives new life to Lydia just a few verses before. So we have two different women from opposing life stations who end up worshiping the same God because of Paul's witness to them. And while the inferred consequence of the exorcism that leads to new birth of the slave girl, there's a clear consequence or a demonstrable uh, um, uh, uh, conclusion to the exorcism, which is that Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in prison by the city magistrates. The owners of this oracle slave drag the two missionaries uh, into the marketplace before the rulers and charge them with, quote, disturbing the city and advocating, quote, customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And without going into many details, the magistrates and the crowd condemn Paul and Silas. They strip their clothing off and then they beat them with rods. And then they throw them into the innermost part of the city prison. And the city officials are so intent on locking up Paul and Silas that they tell the jailer to, quote, fasten their feet in the stocks. And so in the depths of the prison, with their feet being fastened tight, Paul and Silas aren't going anywhere. They are naked and bruised. They are chained up. And they are in the deepest and darkest recesses of the city prison. And this is where we find Paul and Silas, according to Luke, quote, praying and singing hymns to God around midnight. My goodness. Can you imagine such a scene? In today's society, unfortunately, people are unjustly arrested all the time. And we know this not because we hear stories of their worship while imprisoned, but because we see campaigns of outrage on Twitter and on YouTube and other forms of social media. But there was no video that went viral that would help Paul and Silas out of this jam. Instead, they find themselves in prison praising God in the midst of their hardship and at midnight, no less. And I don't know about you, but on a normal day, I go to bed about 10 o'clock. But if I was beaten and imprisoned, I think I would probably want as much rest as I could get. And I would go to sleep as soon as I could. But here are Paul and Silas is singing at midnight, praising God and praying to him. They are singing their hearts out and praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to the God of Jesus the Christ. And Luke tells us that the other prisoners were, quote, listening to them. So here's a life lesson here. People watch and listen to how we handle our circumstances. And I don't have any reason to, to believe that word got around the prison yard, that Paul and Silas were Jesus followers. The other, the other prisoners didn't know that they were missionaries. But I think that they figured it out very quickly that they worshiped a God much differently than the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon when they heard them sing and pray. So how do you respond to hardship? Are you kind of a woe-is-me person? 
uh, where every time something goes wrong, you you ask, why is this happening to me? Or or are you the kind of person that, that asks, what do I need to do to get out of this as quickly as possible? How can I how can I expedite this suffering so I can be out from under it? Or are you like biblical characters like Joseph and Daniel and Jesus and Paul who see their circumstances as providentially ordained and who are willing to suffer righteously as they obey God? And so the Bible says, going on in this story, that there was a great earthquake that shook the ground so mightily that all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfashioned, unfastened. And in addition to opening the doors, the earthquake wakes up the sleeping jailer. And he has this presumption or this thought that the prisoners have, have escaped and that he is going to be held responsible. See, in, in first century uh, Roman culture, uh, whoever is over the prisoners is responsible to keep them guarded. And if anyone escapes, then the jailer will receive the punishment that was due the escaped prisoner. We see this in Acts 12 when Peter escapes uh, from, from prison. Uh, the Bible says that the Roman officials have those guards executed. And so we know that that, that punishment is going to come to this jailer because he presumes that, the, that his prisoners under his watch have escaped. So he draws his sword for the purpose of killing himself. But Paul demonstrates a fully orbed pro-life ethic when he proclaims, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And I don't want to belabor this point, but could you imagine if you were about to watch a man who had falsely imprisoned and chained you up, a man who was likely going to beat you further, if you saw your enemy about to kill himself, I wonder, would you speak up to stop him or would you keep quiet and let him do what he was planning on doing? What if it was a really evil person like Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden? I hope that you would join Paul in preserving life. You see, the Bible says that every person uh, is created in the image of God or, the, or the, the theological languages that we all possess the Imago Dei. And the Imago Dei doesn't disappear whenever someone becomes our enemy. Christ died for us, according to Paul. Christ died for us even while we were still his enemies. And so uh, Christ dies for his enemies. And so in the same way, we should love and serve and seek to protect the life of our enemies as well. And so when the jailer realizes that the prisoners are all accounted for, the Bible says that, quote, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, it's not clear in what sense he's really asking the question. We don't know what he knows of Jesus. He's not a God-fearer like Lydia. He's not possessed like the slave girl, he's somewhere in between. Now, it's possible he heard stories of Paul preaching. It's likely that he fell asleep to the sounds of Paul and Silas praying and singing. But whatever his level of spiritual knowledge is, he is ready for more. For he has seen a God who can shake a prison and can capture the hearts of prisoners in such a way that they choose to remain in custody. And this is the God that this Roman jailer wants to know. And so Paul's response 
And, and, and Silas's response is simple yet profound. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is the message of Christianity. We don't earn God's favor, we receive it. We don't merit God's love, he gives freely. But this comes as a result of believing in Jesus. And what a timely point on the calendar to discuss this passage as we are in the season of Easter to consider this text. I know that Lifeline is a, a Christian organization and that those that listen to this podcast are almost all assuredly believers in Jesus Christ. But just because we work for Lifeline or we listen to this podcast does not guarantee our salvation. I grew up in church and I came to faith in Jesus when I was a summer missionary. That is to say that I was on the road telling people about Jesus in the summer of 1996 preaching in churches and singing and witnessing for Jesus when I had my encounter with him. And I came to faith in Jesus as a missionary. There are stories of colonial American preachers who got saved during the middle of their own sermons. And so if you happen to be listening to this podcast, but you've not experienced a new birth, you've not had a regenerated heart, Today is the day to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember again these words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. There is nothing greater in life than believing in Jesus and to be born again. And so Paul shares both with the jailer and with his whole household, quote, the word of the Lord. And there's no proxy faith in the New Testament. It's not that the jailer believed and then his family followed his religion. No, Paul, the text says, preached to the whole household and the whole household believed. And so in this jailer's belief, he begins to serve as a converted believer, Paul and Silas. This is faith in action. He washes their wounds. His household undergoes believers' baptism. He brings them to his house. He feeds them. And there is much rejoicing because of their faith. And the story concludes in the final verses. The next day, the city leaders decide to release Paul and Silas. And Paul responds by asserting his rights as a Roman citizen. He's not going to let their unjustness go. They are not allowed by law to beat a Roman citizen without being convicted first. And then uh, and so, so they have broken the law, and now they're trying to quietly sweep it under the rug. And Paul says, no, let them come themselves and take us out. So the officials are forced to come and apologize for their injustice. And this might seem prideful. Why is Paul making a big deal about this to show that he's right and they're wrong? But I think likely the reason is that Paul wants to show that the Christians in Philippi are not lawbreakers, Paul is making sure that the church he would leave behind has a good reputation among the authorities. And so on the way out of town at the conclusion of chapter 16, they stop at Lydia's house to visit the brothers, fellow believers in Jesus, to encourage them. And it's interesting that Luke uses the term brothers. Their ministry starts 
with a prayer gathering of women in Philippi because there aren't enough Jewish men to form a synagogue in the town. And, and it seems like the first two converts are single women, right? The, the Lydia and then the slave girl. And then the jailer and his family are all converted. But there is likely more in the city who hear and believe in the message of Jesus. And this is the church that meets at Lydia's house. And this is the church at Philippi from which Paul would later pen his beautiful uh, apostle to the Philippian church that is so wonderful. And so as 21st century Christians, what can we learn from this text? I would like to just briefly draw out three truths. Number one, God can save anyone at any time and in any place. Remember the social and financial and cultural differences between Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer. Different stations in life, different ages, different genders, different religious backgrounds, different everything. And yet Paul made known the name of Jesus to all of them. Our God is not a God of the middle class or a God of the suburbs. He is a God for all. And we have been charged to be his ambassadors and we are to be about the business of reconciling all that we come into contact with back to their creator. So number one, God can save anyone. Number two, our difficult circumstances are a means for kingdom advancement. Paul and Silas were unjustly stripped, beaten, and jailed. And instead of whining, they worshipped. And instead of demanding their rights, they declared God's goodness. And I wonder, is this how we respond to providentially appointed hard times? I'm guessing more often than not, it isn't. We're more apt to be like Job's wife than we are to be Job. When she says, would you just curse God and die? We ask, why are there boils? Why is there death? Why is there suffering? But God has not promised us an easy life or even a life filled with comfort. In fact, our lives and the lives of the families and the children that we serve at Lifeline are broken and hurting as a direct result both of the fall and because of our own sinful choices. But as we serve families and care for the fatherless, we can be beacons of hope and encouragement. So who can you encourage today? Who can you equip to persevere in trials. And think about it this way. Had it not been for the unjustness of Paul and Silas's imprisonment, that Philippian jailer and his family likely never would have heard of Jesus. And so the third truth I want to point out is that we should always be ready to tell others about Jesus. Paul and Silas, as well as Timothy and Luke, were advancing the gospel both with their feet as they traveled across the Mediterranean and with their mouths as they told others, in circumstances both good and bad, in prayer meetings with a demon-possessed groupie in prison, they are telling people about Jesus. And you don't have to be hokey or weird about it. I lived in New Orleans for a number of years, and one of the things some people like to do uh, uh, that I never understood was that they would stand out on the corner of Bourbon Street and they would have a bullhorn in their mouth and they would wear these sandwich boards over their shoulders that basically said, repent or you will burn in hell. And they would uh, scream and talk loudly about uh, Jesus. And uh, 
And I'm not a prophet, but I'm pretty sure that that's not a really effective or a really loving way of winning people into Jesus's kingdom. Paul proclaimed a message of hope. When people ask, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I would pray that you would have an opportunity this week in this Easter season where people are open and willing to hear about religious beliefs, that you would share your faith with somebody this week. Uh, and I would be confident that you would gain a hearing and that God would be blessed if you would have and take the opportunity to proclaim with Paul, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Amen. Well, thanks, Willie. And this week, we are praying for the country of Togo. We are praying specifically that the voodoo spirit would be torn down with the truth of Christ. We are praying that the church would rise up to engage in orphan care with the skills and abilities that God has uniquely given them. We're praying that God would raise up churches in the United States to champion a cause for the fatherless and put Togo on their hearts. We're praying that the gospel would penetrate the hearts of the people. We're praying that strong leaders would rise up to lead the nation of Togo in an ethical way. We're praying for a fresh vision of orphan care that would communicate to the leaders so that they would see a, a holistic nature and a holistic nature would go forth. We're praying for our partner, Pastor Francois, and future growth in our partnerships with him and local church leaders in Togo. We're praying for Gaddis, a, a group of local business and church leaders caring uh, and advocating for uh, orphan and vulnerable children in Togo. We're praying for the leadership and the organization in this group. We praise God for Godwin and Winner and Bernard, children that have started with just a few chickens but have expanded their operation to over 3,000. And they've also begun raising pigs. And we're praising God for their ingenuity and their entrepreneurship and that he would continue to uplift them and help them to see him as they serve him through their business. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word that we've heard this morning, but we also thank you as well for the opportunity to work among the people of Togo. We just would ask that you would raise the church up in such a way and strengthen her in such a way that she would be able to preach uh, the gospel, that the gospel would penetrate the hearts of the people, that through the preaching of the gospel, strong leaders would rise up to lead this nation in an ethical way. And we just pray that the voodoo spirit would be torn down with the truth of Christ. Lord, we pray for Pastor Francois, and we know that several years Years ago, he experienced the, this car wreck, and we just pray that you would continue to recover him and use him and strengthen him. And we pray for future growth and trust to uh, come between us as unadopted and lifeline and Pastor Francois. We're praying for Gaddis, this local group of business leaders and church leaders. We pray for strength and leadership and organization in that group as they see the gospel go forth through orphan care and business and the church. And Lord, we thank you so much for Godwin and Winter, these twin brothers who uh, have seen their life change through the gospel and also through their jobs and their entrepreneurship. We pray for them and Bernard that you would just continue to help them, lead them, guide them, and keep them in your love. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to serve you in Togo. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Inst Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again tomorrow for the Defender Podcast.